Lord, unto you be all the honor, all the glory, all the majesty, all the dominion, all the rulership. Unto you and you alone. Father, we cry out for understanding tonight. David encourages us, Lord, it's not even an option. He says, cry out for insight. Ask the Lord for understanding. And Father, I pray that we all could position ourselves under the will of God and under the word of God tonight. Lord, we choose to stand under the counsel of the Almighty. So Lord, give us, would you, would you, in your grace and mercy, give us understanding. Lord, we cry out for insight, revelation, knowledge. Lord, we've had a wonderful weekend of being reminded of the significance of the trees. In the chapel, Lord, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, the tree upon which Jesus was crucified, and our own cross, that tree we also carry. Lord, these are days of resurrection. We celebrated that glorious day yesterday. Come among us, Lord. Be our guest of honor to the glory and to the majesty of the King of glory, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to have you here tonight. I, I really uh, only met Mike and his wife, Helen, for the first time at lunch today. And... Uh, I really enjoyed our time, but if you read the bulletin, this is the piece that I'm going to read, the part that's cut out. And uh, he, like me, does not like long introductions, but I'm just going to say what has been printed for all of Highland to read, and that is that tonight we have an amazing opportunity to hear from a group and from an individual it really has a heart to minister to the persecuted church in Muslim countries and beyond. And our speaker tonight, Mike Bernard, is a South African. He's written exceptional books on the character and dedication of missionaries. And Mike, I want you to come. And I want all of you to just extend your hand toward him. And Lord, we do that tonight. We extend our hands toward our brother. And Lord, we already acknowledge that there's a great blessing upon his life already. Thank you for the ministry of In Context that 
is really looking to help the church see the world and the kingdom in context for the days in which we're now living. So, Lord, speak through your servant tonight. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. And challenge us. Challenge us. So that we might pursue you in a greater way. Grant that now to the glory and majesty of your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen, Amen Mike. My brother. My brother, thank you so much, Reuben. What a blessing to be here this evening. Um, if you do not understand my Afrikaans accent, just tell me to slow down a little bit. Let me just get the computer going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. Here we go. Thank you, Alan. Friends, yeah, Reuben, um, Jeanette, thank you so much. I, we feel humbled and we feel deeply honored to be here this evening. So thank you for opening your hearts and opening up the church and so that we can together contemplate what God is doing in the world. I also would just like to say thank you to the team, um, Chuck, and there's Chuck all the way from Indianapolis, and Kurt, who really is sort of the link between us and Reuven, and Eric is our head of relations, also from Cape Town in South Africa. It's just such an incredible joy to be here. And I really pray with all my heart, friends, that, that this evening the Lord will open the curtains a little bit as we look into the world and we come to a deeper understanding of a sovereign God creating seasons. And I'm a firm believer in seasonal missions, that God works in seasons and there's a, there's a time to sow, there's a time to reap. There's a time to behold the harvest, and there's a time really to send laborers in and to understand that God is on the move. Um, let me just place this in context, context a little bit. Um, we've been involved with a ministry called Open Doors for nearly 25 years. Um, and it was during one of those seasons that we attended a leadership conference, I think it was in Florida. And I met two of my colleagues from Iran. And I sat down with the two pastors living in Tehran, living in one of the most closed countries in the world, and I asked, to, I asked them, explain to me what is God doing in your region? This is always my heart. Um, John 20 says, where I am, my followers will also be. So it's critical for the church to understand where is God moving? What is God doing in this season? And this was 12 years ago. And with, without hesitating, both of them looked at me and simply said, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And I said, yep, I, I know he is the president of Iran. He was the president. But what does this have to do with what God is doing in the region? And then they started explaining to me the whole eschatology of Shia Islam that the 12th, imam, uh, the 12th imam after Muhammad disappeared and that the 12th imam called the Al-Mahdi will come back to earth and restore the whole world back to Islam. And Shia Islam and the Al-Mahdi will do this together with their prophet Jesus in Jerusalem. And they started sharing the whole dynamics of nuclear weapons in Iran. And how the Almighty will only come back to earth in a time of chaos, a time of an apocalypse. 
and that they suddenly recognized the Arab Spring, they recognized what's happening in the Muslim world, and they understood the desire of Mr. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad to obtain nuclear weapons to enhance the coming of the Almadi. Sounds a little bit foreign to you. It sounded foreign to me. And I must confess, I sat there and I said, Lord, I've been attending mission weeks and mission weekends and conferences for nearly 40 years, thousands of them, and I've never heard anybody speak about this. Are we missing the point? Are we missing the point? Are you busy with something so significant and it's not even on the radar of the church, at least in South Africa? And something took root in my heart of understanding the seasons where God has worked with me. Understanding global news, interpreting global news, not from a prophetic perspective, that's not our ministry, but simply how global news and events in the world today is shaping and creating opportunities for the church to move in. But it needs to be done strategically because we serve a strategic God. From the beginning of creation, God had a plan and a strategy. We see Israel of old going into wars, and every war was a strategic war. Go and spy the land. Camp out on the mountain. Look at the Midianites. There was a strategy. Even Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, said, go into the areas where I will be coming to. There was a strategy. Paul, the apostle, went to the harbor cities to reach the ends of the earth. There was a strategy. And I think in the season that we live in, we often neglect to completely understand what God is doing in the season of today. So this is the ministry of In Context. Let me just start with a short video so that you have an understanding. So 10 years ago, we really saw the need for a ministry to interpret global events in contextual missions and from a biblical perspective. And, and gratefully through the years, God has allowed us to have contacts in various countries. And we started a ministry called In Context. It's, it's basically our vision is to assist and empower mission-minded believers by interpreting and analyzing world events and global trends within a kingdom context 
and to contextualize nations and movements from a missions perspective. We've got four departments in the ministry, and I'm, I'm going to run through this very quickly so that we can get to the understanding part of this evening. We investigate news. Friends, the story of today is fake news, and you know this. It is amazing the fake news penetrating the church and how sometimes we can be so busy with the insignificant that we completely miss the point of what God is doing in the world. ISIS, refugees, Mr. Donald Trump, your nation of America, the context of South Africa within an African context. Friends, we really need to be clued up as to what God is doing in the world today. But not only watching the news, but investigating the news. So as a ministry, we've got a whole research department. As soon as news is known, our research team goes in and starts understanding. But not only from a Western perspective. We've got reporters in Egypt. We've got people in Afghanistan. We've got people in Bhutan, in India, in China. So a bomb explodes in Tanta in Alexandria in Egypt, we immediately contact our workers in Egypt and say, say to them, give us a contextual perspective and help us understand what God is doing in your nation. And this news we then make available to you. So then we interpret. We interpret the news from a kingdom and a biblical perspective, and then we inform believers like you so that you can pray strategically and understand what God is doing for the sake of kingdom involvement. That's the ministry. So from this context, we're going to look at the world this evening. But let me just share one thought with you this evening. It's, it's not only about content this evening. Something that lives in my heart, and Reuben asked me this afternoon, what is the Lord saying to you, Mike? And I say, capacity. Capacity. I think sometimes we come to church like a... We would say a one liter Coke bottle. What is that in, in, in uh, one quart? Coke bottle. And we hope every Sunday morning that the Lord will come and fill our bottles. What actually should happen is when we come to church, not only to fill the bottle, but that we will leave with a bigger bottle. That we will create capacity during our times in church to absorb more of Christ and to be able to reflect more of Christ. So the challenge for the church today, friends, we were standing in a Hezbollah area a few months ago, and we were watching how they were preparing for one of the bloodiest feasts in Islam. And that's where they hit themselves with change and cut themselves with swords. And we were standing in the marketplace, and my thoughts went back to the Syrian pastors that we met a few days earlier talking about the revival in the Middle East, talking not about hundreds and thousands, but tens of thousands of Muslims that are coming to know Christ. And the only thought that took place in my heart is, Lord, do we have the capacity in this season as a church in the West to deal with the harvest field? We might have the content. We might have the biblical knowledge. We even might have an understanding of missions, and we might have attended conferences about the persecuted church. But do we have the capacity? And friends, the season that we live in today demands renewed capacity from believers. We need to be stretched. We need to be exposed. We need to find new dimensions of reaching areas where God is at work. 
John Piper said the following. He said, O God of wonder, enlarge my capacity to be amazed at what is amazing and end my attraction to the insignificant. May we be again amazed at the amazing. There is a need to interpret. And I want to encourage you, friends, to really, when you watch the news, find God's lenses, God's glasses, and look through God's perspective of what is happening in the world. Spoke to someone the other day and said they don't watch any news. It makes them depressed. And I said, for God's sake, just change your glasses. Because if you watch news today, you will come to an understanding that God is not a spectator. God is on the move. And this is what we will contemplate tonight. Mark 13 verse 28 says, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. You will interpret the fig tree in such a way that you will understand the season that you're living. We need to understand, we spoke about this this afternoon, Reuben, the men from Issachar that understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So friends, this evening, I'd like us to look at five movements, five influences. I'd like us to look quickly and briefly at the divide within Islam that is shaping the world that we live in. To such an extent that it influences leaders, even like Mr. Donald Trump. It influences decisions like Brexit in London and in, in the UK. And it shapes nations, all because of the divide in Islam. We will look at the story of our time, which is refugees. Probably the biggest movement of people that our generation has witnessed. We will look at the Back to Jerusalem movement, a new mission force moving from China into the unreached world. We will look at technology, shaping our minds, our thoughts, and our perspectives. We will look at four nations this evening, or as far as we get. I'm not going to go over my time. We're going to look at your nation of the USA, probably the most strategic nation in missions today. And I will explain to you why. We will look both at... Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon, and how these three nations are shaping the world of faith that we live in. We will probably not get to the four leaders, but let me just say to you four leaders that you need to watch. Number one, Mr. Donald Trump. And, and I know I'm on dangerous ground here, so I'm not going to express what I think of him, but I want you to know this, whether you like him or not. God appoints leaders for seasons. And what is happening in the Middle East today, every Christian I speak to in the Middle East, whether it be one of the bishops in Egypt or a pastor from Syria or someone in Lebanon, will tell you this is God's man for the season that we live in in the Middle East. And it's amazing to hear stories of how his speech in Saudi Arabia has affected people. We look at Prince Salman, we'll probably not get to him, but one of the major events of our generation happened two weeks ago. When Muhammad Salman, the prince, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the heartland of Islam, went to Egypt and met with the Coptic church. And to the leaders of the Coptic church in Egypt, he said, you are welcome as guests in Saudi Arabia. Now friends, up to that point, and you will know Reuven, Christians were infidels. If you're a Christian in Saudi Arabia, you will be killed. And this changed from infidel 
from, from pagan to guest. Friends, something is happening. God is on the move. We live in amazing times. We, we can look at Kim Jong-un from North Korea and obviously Vladimir Putin from Russia. These are four influential leaders. But let's, let's start with the Islamic divide this evening. And friends, I really want you to just open your hearts and understand the season that we find ourselves in the Middle East. Mark 3 verse 24 says a very, very significant thing. It says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Most of what we see in the world today has its origin in one way or another in the Islamic divide in the Middle East. Now, let, let me just explain that. First of all, we get the historical divide. We find within Islam two main sects. And if, if, you're, if you're informed, please forgive me. Um, let me just confirm this. You get the Sunni Muslim and you get the Shia Muslim. And these two groups of Muslim confess exactly the same. They pray exactly the same. They read the same book, the Quran, and they pray to the same God, Allah. And yet they hate one another more than they love life. The Shia and the Sunni briefly are divided historically. After Muhammad can the Shia sect within Islam said only a family member of Muhammad can rule Islam. And the Sunni said anybody that's theologically qualified can rule Islam. And they started the division. And most of the, the, the leaders within Islam after that have been killed by one another. And friends, everything that we see today is because of the divide within Islam. The, the battle for Syria... It's not a battle for democracy. Syria is a nation ruled by a Shia Alawite leader, al-Assad. But the majority of the population are Sunni Muslims. And it's in, unacceptable within a culture of honor and shame that the Shia will rule a Sunni. So the battle in Syria is Muslims killing Muslims. The battle in Yemen is Muslims killing Muslims. The battle that we find in Iraq is Muslims killing Muslims. So the divide in Islam is responsible for the 65.3 million refugees in the world. So we find spiritually a dynamics that we have not witnessed before. And this is significant. There are, there are about 1.7 billion Muslims. 85% of them are Sunni and 15% are Shia. In Islamic terrorism, you find that since 1948, about 11 million Muslims have been killed. 90% of them have been killed by other Muslims. Now, friends, this is extremely significant. I, I love the saying that says, faith is not believing in God. Faith is believing the God you believe in. Let me just repeat that. Faith is not believing in God. Faith is believing the God that you believe in. Now, for Muslims who believe in Allah... And, and dedicate their lives, Islam means submit. So a Muslim is someone who submits. So someone who submits to their God and then find that people who submit to the same God are the, the source of their hardship brings an incredible disillusionment. And you find that Muslims are running to Jesus because of Islam. 
You find today that Syria and Iraq are key examples of the Islamic divide. There's also a theological divide. Now, now the question here is, who is the real Muslim? Is it the, the Hamas or the Hezbollah or is it the ISIS? Are those the real Muslims? Or just the ordinary guy in the streets somewhere in the United States or in South Africa or in the UK? Who is the real Muslim? And I think this is what confuses the West because they both are real Muslims. Islam is a contradistinctive theology, if I can make it really difficult this evening. In other words, there are distinct theologies that contradict one another. So if you want to follow the scripture in the Holy Quran that says you must kill the infidel, you become a Muslim that holds on to those scriptures. If you find faith in the scripture in the Quran that says you must make friends with the people of the book, the Christian or the Jew, then you hold on to that and you can be a real Muslim. So it is a theology that creates opportunity for radicals or for moderates to find their faith in the same book. And this is the great thing about Christianity, isn't it? We, we read in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus came and he said, a new commandment I give unto you. So there's no doubt of what the Bible teaches us when Christ gave us a new commandment. There's no new commandments in the Quran. So Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi from ISIS, real Muslim. The Imam here in America, the peace-loving guy, real Muslim. It's a contradistinctive theology, and this confuses Muslims. Because suddenly, the mos suddenly a mosque is blown up in, in Syria, and the Muslims who went to the mosque say, but this is the same people. It's the same faith. The people that are my brothers in Islam is killing me and raping my woman. So you find the contradistinctive theology creates a huge division. But on 24 June last year, there was a whole new dimension when the holiest of holiest of mosques in Saudi Arabia, a Sunni mosque, was attacked by ISIS, who is a Sunni movement. So suddenly, for the first time, we found that Sunnis killing Sunnis. And this brings a whole new dimension. Friends, this is creating a faith dynamics that our generation has not witnessed. It's creating opportunities like we have not seen in our generation. We've been involved in missions now for nearly 40 years. And I did not think I would see what we see today. The result of this is probably the biggest movement of our generation. And that's refugees. And just have a look, quick look at this video. Being a refugee is much more than a political status. It is the most pervasive kind of cruelty that can be exercised against a human being. You are forcibly robbing this human being of all aspects that would make human life not just tolerable but meaningful in many ways. The more immune you are to people's suffering, that's very, very dangerous. It's critical for us to maintain this humanity. الان شست روزه با پسرم همینطوری داریم میچرخیم ولی هیچ کس نیستش که بگه یه راهی رو بخواد به ما نشون بده کجا برم زندگیمو شروع کنم 
if children grow up without any hope, without any prospects for the future, without any sense of them being able to make something out of their lives, then they will become very vulnerable to all sorts of exploitation, including radicalization. <laughs> The officials came here and told them, look, there's no way you're going to get papers to continue. Either you go voluntarily or we arrest you. I respect you. I respect the passport and I respect you. going to be a big challenge to recognize that the world is shrinking and people from different religions, different cultures are going to have to learn to live with each other. Friends, this is truly the story of our time. If we look at the, the 65.3 million people being uprooted, I think we serve a God of anguish. Friends, if, if we read scripture, we find that Jesus was a man of sorrow. He stood at the grave of Lazarus and he wept. He looked at the multitudes and he wept. He saw the people hungry. Jesus himself was a refugee. He understood the call of the people that have been uprooted violently and are suffering beyond words this evening. When we sit with the people in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon and we, we go into a tent and you see the, the emptiness in the eyes of people. We live in desperate times, friends. The church exists for a season like this. I sometimes say, Lord, just give me more words because I have run out of words. Just give me something to share. If we look at the world today, one in every 109 people in the world have been violently uprooted. Violently. If it was a nation, it would have been the 20th biggest nation in the world. In 2015, 23,500 people were displaced every single day of the year. 51% of them are children. The war in Syria has killed more than 500,000 people and has uprooted half of the population. Something that touched my heart so deeply. Our first visit to Lebanon, we went to one of the Christian leaders, and it's just amazing to see what the Christians do. Wherever there's a refugee camp, the Christians would open a center right next to the camp. The children would be invited, the children would receive education, they would care for the people during winter, they would feed the people. It's just amazing to see what the church does. And we went to the one leader and said to him, my brother, please give us an understanding of how you work with the refugees. And he said the following. He said, my brother, if we think about them as refugees, we treat them like refugees and they stay refugees. But if we think about them as being created in the image of God, we treat them like children of God and they become children of God. Friends, that ministered to my heart. Because if we 
treat them or think about them as refugees, they will stay refugees. But if we can understand that they are created in the image of God, and, and I can only imagine that the father of compassion, as we read in 1 Corinthians, if he looks down on these group of people seeking refuge, seeking humanity, seeking dignity, then something in the heart of the church must be awakened. Friends, this is the season. And I love what Matthew Henry says. He says, why are you not aware that you have now an opportunity which you will not have long and which you may never have again? of securing to yourself an interest in the kingdom of God and the privileges of that kingdom. Now is the accepted time. Now or never. It is the folly and misery of man that he knows not his time. But friends, let me share with you the kingdom perspective. We can look at the refugees and in a sense we can feel hopeless. But if we understand God's fingerprints in what is happening, if you look at how the refugees are reshaping faith in Europe. You know, a lot of people say, all the Muslims going to Europe is going to Islamicize Europe. That's not going to happen. We sent a research team to Germany. We met university leaders, government leaders, pastors, and mission leaders. And without exception, they told us, the refugees flooding into Europe is God's plan of salvation for Europe. And I said, my brother, you need to explain and he started explaining how Europe has become a, a, a secular continent. Faith is lost. You, you, we all know that. With the wealth and the comfort and security, Europe has become independent of God and secular. And the one pastor said to me, you do not challenge secularism with religion. You challenge secularism with poverty. That's the only thing that will shake wealth is this incredible exposure to sudden poverty that they're not used to. And the, the, the one pastor shared with us how on the Friday, the, the, what happens in Germany is the refugees flood in. They put into an emergency camp for a weekend and then on the Monday they placed out. And as soon as they enter Germany, they are treated like unemployed Germans. So they get free accommodation, they get a salary, they get free food. Just amazing. And he said the refugees from Iraq entered on the Friday. He immediately went in as a pastor and after they were sorted out and their names and details taken, he got the group together from Iraqi Muslims and he showed them the Jesus DVD. And this one Iraqi gave his life to Jesus. It's just amazing. Confronted with his own faith, and now suddenly the, the Christian enemy welcomes him in and cares for him. Just mind-boggling up here. And he asked if he could get a copy of the DVD. So the, the, the pastor gave him a copy. And on the Monday, the social workers came in to place them out. And the social worker that came to this newborn Iraqi believer was an atheist. And after taking all his details, the, <laughs> this new Iraqi Christian said to the German atheist, before you go, can I show you a DVD? And the German said, well, I'm finished for the day, so I might as well watch. And lo and behold, he came to know Christ. This young Iraqi is two days old on the Lord, and already he has led someone to the Lord. And you just see God moving. If you look at Germany today, more than 2,500 baptisms 
in the evangelical free churches. More than 1,000 baptisms in the Federation of Pentecostal Churches. More than 850 baptisms in the independent evangelical churches. 700 baptisms in the Union of Evangelical Free Churches. And it just continues, friends. God is a strategic God. And every disaster can become an opportunity. And friends, we see the refugees turning to Christ, not by the hundreds, but by the thousands and the tens of thousands. When we went into Lebanon, and you go into the Beirut slums, and you walk into a church packed with about 500 people, and you ask them, how many of you were Muslims? Everybody raises their hand. We live in amazing times. And we can watch the news and either get be despaired, or we can be encouraged to know that God is still sovereignly in control. The third movement is the Back to Jerusalem movement from China. Friends, China has changed from a mission field to a mission force. And when we stood in the Middle East and we say, Lord, where are the workers going to come from? There was one clear answer from an area that you would not expect. Asia, now by the way, this is not a cross um, as a symbol of Jesus. But they put it in the back of the soldiers to keep their backs up straight and their shoulders back. And uh, I just think that's so symbolic, isn't it? That's what the cross does to us, isn't it? It keeps us upright before man and straight before God. Friends, if we look at Asia, I, I think we really need to contemplate how God strategically selects nations for seasons. Asia, 50 nations, 4.2 billion people. 60% of the world's population, six out of every 10 people live in Asia. And 21 of the top most closed countries in the world situated there. 20% Muslim, 23% Hindu, 11% Buddhist, and only 8.8% Christian. But man, what a difference does those 8.8% make? It is amazing to understand if you've got these, this amount of people, then a small percentage is still a lot of people. I mean, there, there are more children in China or more graduates in China than people in America. If you think small percentage, but a lot of people. Asia, 91% non-Christian, 42% unevangelized. 99% of all Hindus in the world live in Asia. 98% of all Buddhists in the world live in Asia. 70% of all Muslims in the world live in Asia. And 15% of all Christians in the world live in Asia. So you get a continent that is completely unevangelized. And suddenly you find God raising up a nation. And friends, if we, look at, if we look at China and we say, Lord, how will you do this? We find China has got 14 neighbors. 45% of the world's population live either in China or around China. 1.3 billion people, 91% non-Christian. 2% Muslim. But that 2% Muslims are three times more than all the Muslims in North and South America combined. Just gives you an idea of the amount of people, 1.3 billion, 8% Christian. And here, 
is what you find if you start connecting the dots. 1920, nearly 100 years ago, the Lord calls a group of church leaders from the underground together and gives them a vision, the back to Jerusalem vision. This is not to go and share the gospel in Jerusalem, but to take the gospel back to Jerusalem with all the nations in between. 100 years ago. In 1989, we see the Lord revives his church. We find after years of persecution, severe persecution, the Beijing, the Tiananmen uprising in Beijing takes place. And you find a young generation being completely disillusioned with communism, coming together and saying, we've had enough. And the leader of the Tiananmen Square revolution came to know Christ. And you can only imagine what happened after that. She lives in the U.S. now. 2013, this was five years ago, we attended a conference organized by the Chinese church for the Chinese church. And they contemplated missions. And they said, the underground church said, the house church movement said, we're going to tithe our church leaders to become missionaries in the unreached world that's next to us. And friends, the Lord started something that you can only be completely amazed about. We see a mission force generating energy today from China. Last year, May, we attended another, uh, attended another conference. And what the church in China is now speaking about is the Obar. I don't know if you've heard about the Obar, the One Belt, One Road, from Xi Jinping, the, 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 the declared emperor of China today. He's got an economic vision of reaching 68 nations on the, the old Silk Route and planting businesses. And what he's saying to the population of China, anybody that wants to open a business in any of the countries along this route, the government will provide the funds and the government will provide the visa. And suddenly the church says, wow, what an opportunity. We can now go to Pakistan as mission, well, to plant businesses and the government will pay for us. And we find a mission movement, and they describe it like an arrow. They say the point of the arrow are businessmen planting businesses in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in wherever it might be, all along the old Silk Route, 68 nations. The missionaries will be the shaft. That will be the people that follows, and the feathers will be prayer. And they, they currently are sending missionaries into all the countries that are neighbors and are known as the unreached world. And we see a mission field now becoming a mission force. Amazing. Friends, we live in amazing times. I remember smuggling Bibles into China. I remember the days when we were, we were caught on the border with Bibles. I remember meeting pastors in secret and just giving them Bibles. And now they are the missionaries. Not only surviving, but reviving. We serve a God of wonders. And if you think God, God had this in mind 100 years ago as he prepared the church and, 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 taught, and equipped the church, not in Bible schools but in prison camps. The one pastor in Vietnam was speaking to us and they spoke about going to Bible school again and I said, do you have Bible schools? And he said, my brother, you don't know what we're talking about. We're talking about prison camps. Because for us, prison camps are God's universities. And then he said, you've got... The Word, the Bible, and then you've got the Word of the Word, 
which is your church, and then you've got the word of the word of the word, which is your denomination. And he continued. He said, in the Bible, we don't, in the prison, we don't have the word of the word of God. We don't have the word of God. We just have God. And that's where God equips us. Amazing seasons. And then the last influence this evening before we go to countries, technology. Friends, we live, I don't have to tell you this, I think you're probably more technologically advanced as I am, but we live in amazing times with technology. This afternoon I had a message from Lebanon, from one of the pastors, just saying, the Lord bless you over Easter. This morning early I had a message both from India and from Nepal and also from Bhutan, one of the most unreached countries in the world where the pastors just said, happy Easter. And you think this is all on a little mobile phone, which is also a computer and also autobank and, and also a map, which we use today, not with great success, but we used it. And uh, just amazing how the technology has changed the world that we live in. Just have a quick look, if I can bore you with statistics. Six billion people own a mobile phone. Only 4.2 billion people in the world own a toothbrush. That's scary, isn't it? That's scary. You see the refugees. Every single one of them have a mobile phone. And people say, yeah, but look at them. They've got mobile phones. Of course they've got a mobile phone. It's the only contact they have. It's the only connection they have with the family back home. They will sell everything and keep a mobile phone. Because then they are connected. And some of them literally do not have a toothbrush. But they do have their mobile phone. 294 billion emails are sent every day. I think I receive most of them. <laughs> Facebook, 1.1 billion subscribers. If it was a nation, it would have been the third biggest nation in the world. People that belong to the Facebookians, I don't know what you would call them. The world has 2.4 billion internet users. The fastest internet growing population in 2012 was Iran. Can you understand the doors opening up? Can we understand today that in Saudi Arabia, when a Muslim comes to know Christ, there's no way that he could be discipled in any way except through the internet. Can't go to church, can't even tell his family that he's a Christian. But he can go into his study and lock the door and connect to the internet and be discipled. I firmly believe the gospel is a personal message with personal discipleship, but it's not always possible. And God has created ways for us to reach people. China alone has 360 million internet users. The battle for the minds of Muslims today is not being fought in the Fallujahs or the mosques. It's being fought on the internet. And it's amazing to see how Muslims go on the internet and find freedom in Christ and seek a relationship with God. And they find it on the internet. Just have a look at Google. Google now processes over 40,000 search queries every second on average. This is according to Google. 40,000 search queries. This is 3.5 billion searches every day. 16 to 20% of the queries have never been asked before. Every query, just listen to this, has to travel an average of 1,500 miles to a data center and back to return the answer, using 1,000 computers in less 
than 0.2 seconds. Can the brain even comprehend that? It is just amazing how technology has advanced, but now comes the dangers. Let me just, there are a multitude of challenges with technology, but let me just show you two, and maybe you will appreciate this. We cannot believe what we see anymore. This is media manipulation. They call it, the technological term is deep fake. So what you do is you need 15 seconds of a face profile, and then you can create a mask that you can put over your face, and you can manipulate the face. Um, just to give you an idea. He never smiles. You can make him smile. But if he had a better sequence of him, right, where he did smile, then it, it, then it would look my, more like him. Now it looks more like me in a sense. This can be done on live television. So you can, you can imagine how we can manipulate news in the sense that if a tragedy happens, we can actually make someone like Donald Trump smile and gives an impression that he doesn't care. We can make Putin look like we want him to look in an interview. This is scary. And this is happening on live television. And they give some good examples. You can go and have a look. But this, to me, is even more dangerous. We get what they call a slaughter bot technology. And, and this was presented in November 2017 by Stuart Russell, a computer sciences professor. And he says, beware of killer robots. And just to give you an idea how technology can be used he says for good, but it can be used for evil. We almost 3,000 precision strikes last year. We're super proud of it. It allows you to separate the bad guys from the good. It's a big deal. But we have something much bigger. Your kids probably have one of these, right? Not quite. Hell of a pilot? No. That skill is all AI. It's flying itself. Its processor can react a hundred times faster than a human. The stochastic motion is an anti-sniper feature. Just like any mobile device these days, it has cameras and sensors and just like your phones and social media apps, it does facial recognition. Inside here is three grams of shaped explosive. This is how it works. Did you see that? Friends, we live in, in 
times where we find that God is shaping the earth that we live in for a season like this. And as a church, we cannot be ignorant. Just a quick question. What is the most recognizable face of the 20th century, do you think? Take a guess. <laughs> okay. There we go. This is the most record. It just shows you the power of technology. Friends, you can go into any country in the world. Right. Let's, let's quickly look at one or two nations that is shaping the world that we live in. I want to start with your beautiful nation, America. And I want to start this evening by saying, friends, thank you for what America has deposited spiritually to the ends of the earth. I have not been into one country where I have not met an American missionary. And I really think the world is in debt to your beautiful nation. And I don't think there is a more generous nation than America. And I really want to say this evening, thank you for that. You have deposited greatly into the kingdom of God. And I pray with all my heart, friends, that this will accelerate, that there will be a new urgency, that the season we live in will, will energize you for new heights in the kingdom of God. America, you know the statistics, but let me give you this. America, according to the Atlas of Global Christianity, sends out 127,000 missionaries. This is as many as the next top seven nations combined. Just to give you an indication. This nation is responsible for exporting the gospel more than any other country on earth. And I, I really think the Lord honors that of the heritage that you're leaving behind. You send out five times more than the continent of Africa. You receive 32,400 missionaries, so they're obviously doing a good work as well. You're the biggest nation, Christian nation in the world. You're the richest Christian nation in the world. And friends, whatever happens in America politically will influence the world spiritually. And I'm an outsider. I come from South Africa. We've got our own challenges. But I really want to encourage you as Christians in this amazing nation in whatever, and this is what I say at every church also in South Africa. The one pastor in Lebanon said to us, the rhythm in heaven has changed. It is time, his words, to run with heaven. We cannot do missions like we did five years ago because the world is not the same. There has to be an acceleration. There has to be a new urgency. There has to be now within the body of Christ an awareness that he, this season has got an expiry date. This season will pass. The, the, the Christians in the Middle East say to us, three years maximum, three years, and the season is gone. And the reality with the harvest field is if the farmer does not move in, the harvest does not wait. It rots. And therefore, this is a season to move like never before. I think your challenge is not... Only Islam, you have a very small population, according to statistics, between four and six million. Your challenge is that 21% of these Muslims are Christians who converted to Islam. 
and that according to the Pew Foundation, one in every four Muslims in America under the age of 30, 30 support suicide bombings. So you find with people that are marginalized and becoming more radical, and that's a challenge. And this is the responsibility, not of the government, but of the church. Because we seek souls. And every Muslim that has not fully understood the gospel of Jesus Christ is our responsibility. This is true for America. This is true for South Africa. But I think your challenge lies more amongst the nuns. According to the Pew Foundation, 70% of Americans who have a religion believe that there's more one path to salvation. And this is a challenge. And you will know this better than I. 20% and a third of all adults under the age of 30 are religiously unaffiliated. This is the challenge we face. The second country, Syria. Friends, Syria is shaping the world we live in today. Many people ask me, Mike, do you think we're on the brink of a third world war? Friends, we're in the middle of a third world war. 23 nations are fighting one another in Syria. Now, now, can you imagine Syria was France and 23 nations were fighting one another in France? It would have been declared a third world war. But it's in Syria, so who cares? And this is the reality. If you think how the people of Syria are suffering, this is what it looks like. 18 million people, of which 10% is Christian. So because Mr. al-Assad is a, is a Shia Muslim, belonging to the minority Muslim group, and there are Christians who are also part of a minority group, he actually gave Christians more rights than any other Arab nation. And the Christians, wherever you find them, love the president, Mr. Al-Assad. The news we get, and, and friends, you really need to understand this, the news we get is that the rebels, the Al-Nusra rebels, supported by the United States, are the good guys. But you need to understand these are the guys that come in and kill the Christians. Mr. Vladimir Putin supporting al-Assad is actually supporting the church. And we find this conflict of, of not fully understanding what is happening and how we see the white helmets, the, the red cross of Syria going in and then staging a, a chemical war death, children lying on the ground. And as soon as they go out, the children stand up and run around again. We need to understand the dynamics of what's happening there. 74% Sunni, 13 Shia, and more than 11 million of the 18 million have been displaced. This is what it looks like. 11 million people uprooted, 450,000 Christians fled the country, 3 million, million displaced children. One person dies violently in Syria every 10 minutes. Do you want to hear the good news? You want to have the God understanding. This is Homs. This is what it looks like. Completely destroyed. This is Pastor Rami, one of the pastors we support. He never fled Homs. He stayed there and he decided to rent a building and invite people to come and hear about Jesus. He said within three weeks, the church was packed to capacity. That's the only building he could find. So he decided to have a second service. Now, understanding that every service is about three hours long. So starting 8 o'clock till 11 o'clock, second service. After three weeks, back to capacity. So they have a third service now. 
Three services every Sunday, back to capacity. People are queuing outside. So this I received last week, where he just decided he's going to present a lunch and invite anybody that wants to come and just have a time of sanity. And this is what it looked like, back to capacity, sharing the word of God. And he's just begging with us now, please help me to find a bigger building and just pay the rent for a bigger building. Opportunities like we have not seen before. This is Jaramana. The, the pastor, Pastor Aid, said to us in Jaramana, in their town, in the past five years, 13,000 missiles, bombs, have fell on the city. C can you imagine, Wacko? 13,000 bombs falling on the city. This is what it looks like. This is what his church looks like. This is the entrance hall. This is the people queuing outside. He begged us. He said, please just provide a television screen so that I can put it on the outside of the building so people queuing outside can at least hear the message. Friends, in the midst of the trauma, God is building his church. This is Aleppo. Aleppo, we all know. We, we probably think of Aleppo as hell on earth. This is what it looks like today. You can see the picture there, what it looked like, known as the Paris of the Arab world. This is what it looks like today. We met Pierre and Zuka. The lady Zuka said to us, she said these words, she said, Aleppo is God's paradise. And I said, Zuka, you need to explain that to me. She said, my brother, this is where people are running to Jesus. God is a God of wonders. Damascus. We met Pastor Hussam. He's a blind pastor. He wasn't born blind. Three years ago, he fell ill, went to Germany, got healed, but he lost his sight. He's a blind pastor, and he said to us with this huge smile that when I became blind, the Lord gave me vision. And he said, my brother, when I meet a Muslim, the Lord just gives me an understanding of what this man needs, and I proclaim it to him, and they come to know Jesus. He said, people see me as a man of God. Because God has given me vision. And people are queuing outside his house to hear more about Jesus. And friends, Egypt. Egypt, a nation that God has shaken through various attacks and bomb blasts. It's a nation, key to understand, 92 million people, 12% Christian, 91% of them belongs to the Coptic Church, 87% Muslim, but 47% of all the Christians in the Arab world lives in Egypt. So Egypt becomes the gateway. Now let me just share with you on Palm Sunday last year, two bombs exploded. 48 people killed in two separate bomb blasts by ISIS. And ISIS declaring that we will now make Christianity our number one enemy. And we were all wondering, this was Palm Sunday, what would happen on Easter Sunday? Will Christians be scared to go to church? And this is, what, this is what the church looked like when it was attacked. And this is what it looked like on Easter Sunday. The church was overflowing. Friends, it was, it was, we were there. We, it was incredible to see how the bomb blasts gave the Christians courage. And that's what the pastor said. The church woke us up. When the bombs exploded, something in the church woke. This is what it looked like a church we visit every year. 
I've never seen the church full. And this was taken by the people queuing outside the church. But let me just share this video with you. This was on national television. This man is one of the main television broadcasters in Egypt. He's, he's, everybody knows him. He's a radical Muslim. But he's the news presenter. So in this news clip, they went over to the field reporter talking to the wife. Let me just take this so I can read it to you. Talking to the wife who lost her husband and her son um, in the bomb blasts. So they're interviewing her, and this is what she says. She says, I'm not angry. I'm not angry at the one who did this. I am telling you, may God forgive you. You are not in your right mind. My son, believe me, I'm not angry. He is gone now. He's dead. And I ask the Lord to forgive them and let them try to think. Think, think. Believe me. If they think, they will know that we didn't do anything wrong to them. Think again what you are doing. Is it wrong or right? May God forgive you. And we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place that I couldn't have dreamed of. Believe me, I am proud of him. And I wish I was there beside him. Believe me. And I thank you. Now look at this guy's face. He doesn't know what to say. This is on national television. Yep. Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Egyptian Christians for hundreds of years are bearing many atrocities and disasters. The Egyptian Christian deeply loves his country. The Egyptian Christian bears everything for the sake of his nation. Oh, how great is this amount of forgiveness you have. If your enemy knew how much forgiveness you have for them, he would not believe it. This is a Muslim. If it was my father, I could never say this. These people have so much forgiveness. These people are made from a different substance. Friends, isn't, this is a radical Muslim preaching the gospel on national television simply because Christians responded with a different spirit. And this is what Pastor Samek said to us. He said the two bomb blasts were answers to our prayers. We've been seeking the Lord for 30 years, but the watch was not moving. We were watching for a time such as this. This is a glorious time. It's a time of shaking and awakening. The spirit of fear has left us, and people are running to the Lord. And then he said, it's a wonderful thing when you find a key that unlocks a locked door. Forgiveness is that key. Wow, friends. In Islam, a life for a life. You blow up my mosque, I blow up your mosque. For Christians, forgiveness. Ah. Friends, we're going to close with the last country this evening. Here we go. When am I supposed to finish? Ah, oh, hallelujah. But are you, <laughs> friends, are you still with me? I, need, I can carry on. Reuben said, I can carry on till the last person goes. Okay. Okay. In Africa, we do it differently. Okay, there we go. Let's, let's have a look at Lebanon, friends. 
I want to close with this, and I want to I want to actually give you an opportunity for questions this evening. So if you can think in the meantime, if you do have a question, let me just also say I should have said this at the beginning. I'm not including Israel here. Israel, obviously, the number one nation, prophetic nation. We know that. But I'm not going to talk about Israel because you have two experts in your congregation that knows a lot more than I do about Israel. But Israel prophetically would be number one on any list. But what I'm talking about this evening are nations in the news at the moment as global events are unfolding. So number four is Lebanon. Lebanon is an amazing country in the Middle East. Um, has anybody of you been to Lebanon? Okay, great. Yes, of course. You've been to Lebanon and Israel. How do you achieve that? Because if you, they, they, they don't really love anybody coming in with any inclination that they've been to, to Israel. Lebanon, just listen to this, 5.85 million people, 30% Christian, 30% Sunni, 30% Shia. And according to the constitution, because it was a French colony, the president must always be a Christian. So the president of Lebanon is a Christian. And then obviously the prime minister would be um, Shia and, and, and one of the other leaders would be Sunni. But 1.5 million refugees in this small nation. One out of every four people in Lebanon would be a refugee. Friends, this is incredible if you think about the percentages. And also understanding that Lebanon and Syria are natural enemies. So they were always at war with one another. Now this adds to this dimension. Syrian Muslims are being killed by radical Muslims in Syria. They flee to their neighboring country, which is also Muslim, and they are completely rejected by Lebanon. And then the Christians open shelters, and the Christians care for the Muslims. And then the, the, what the Muslims would naturally see as their enemy, the Christians, suddenly becomes the people who care for them. And friends, this opens the hearts of Muslims. I mean, Eric was with us there, and he just going into tent after tent after tent. And people just welcome you. We arrive there something like 4 o'clock in the morning after basically two days on the airplane. And then we travel over the mountain from Beirut into the Bekaa Valley, into Zahle. And you arrive there fairly late in the evening, and the refugees are standing there outside the evangelical center. And they say, please, please, come, come have meal with us, come have meal. And we say, yeah, Habibi, we're tired. You know, we, we flew for two days. Can we come tomorrow? We, we really just need to get some sleep first. And the one man looks at us and says, you come sleep with us. You come sleep with us. Please come. And you just sense that desire to know about a God who loves. It doesn't feature in their theology. God is not love. God is judge, and he will send you to hell if he feels like it. And then suddenly this, this message of hope and of dignity. And we've seen refugees when they arrived in the camp. And we've seen them a few months later. And they just see the eyes sparkle again. There's life. 50% are children. The current population of Lebanon, due to the refugee influx, was only predicted for 2050. Friends, this is what it looks like. This is what the tent looks like on the inside. The people will, f will cross the borders from Syria into Lebanon. 
they will go to a farmer and ask if they can please have a piece of land. And then they have to work, the children have to work in the farm fields to pay for this little tent. And it's just four poles with a canvas over it. But the hospitality, you go into the camp and this is what they feed you. This is where we sit there. They have nothing and they give everything. This is Silva. Silva fled from Aleppo and she said to us, if it wasn't for the war, I would never know Jesus. And she said, now that I have Jesus, I have enough. She has lost everything. This is a church in, in Beirut. This is an old bomb shelter. Pastor Makdi said to us, we have seen nearly 100 refugee families come into our church, be discipled, and eventually sent as church planters amongst the Arab communities in Canada, Sweden, Germany, Algeria, and a number of other nations. It's amazing. If we read scripture, friends, we find that God mostly worked through refugees. If you think Jesus was a refugee, if you think Caleb was a refugee, if you think of the early church in Acts, Acts 8 verse 1, we read that Stephen was stoned to death. Paul persecuted the church, and as they fled, they spread the word. It's amazing. God is using the refugees to reach out to the Muslim world. This is the Baptist Church Convention in Beirut. All of them refugees. And the great thing is that you can see them with their mobile phones taking pictures and it's just an open door for the gospel. This is the church in Beirut, in the Beirut slums. The one, the one young man, Timothy, shared with us, he's a Kurdish refugee. He fled from Iraq. He said he was put into prison in Iraq, in, in, the, in Kurdistan. Um, we said to him, why were you put in prison? He said, because I'm a Kurd. With, with a whole hatred from Arabs and the Kurds, they just put you in prison. And he said, I was in prison one day, and I was crying out to Allah. I was crying out to my God and said, help me. I cry out to you, nothing happens. And he said he looked through the prison bars, and there was a light. And from other testimonies, he knew this was Jesus. And he said there came a voice from the light outside the prison cell, and the voice said to him, Timothy, I will give you life abundantly. He said it meant nothing to him. <laughs> He's in prison. What does life abundant mean when you're in prison? And he said he escaped, don't know how. He fled, came over the border, fled into Beirut, came into the Beirut slums. And he said he was walking in the street when suddenly he heard some singing. And he realized this was a church. So he walked up the stairs and he said, as he entered the building, there was the sign saying, the Church of Christ of Abundant Life. And he just knew this was it. Came to know the Lord. And he's today one of the pastors in this church. And it's just packed. And these people sitting there are all Muslim converts. This lady, we visited her in the tent. And uh, through our translator, we spoke. And she became suddenly very animated. And we felt that maybe we offended her. So we asked the, the translator, what is she saying? And he, he said, let her just finish. So she was really animated. And then the translator said to us, he was, she was explaining to him how she responded when the local Muslim leader visited the tent. 
And the Muslim leaders said to him, said to them as a family, do not go to the Christians. They are evil people. They are immoral people. And that's when she became animated. And she said to the, to the Muslim leader, when we were hungry, you gave us nothing. It was the Christians that fed us. When we were dying of cold in the tents, you did nothing to help us. It was the Christians that gave us small wooden stoves. And then when we left, she said to, our, she said to her husband, the people in the center knows God more than us. I want to be like them. Friends, we live in an amazing season. We live in an absolutely amazing season. Maybe just a, a short view into our visit to Lebanon. said, if we look at these people as refugees, they remain refugees. But if we look at them as being created in the image of our God, then they become children of our God. never possible to enter the houses of these people but because of the war which we normally look at to be a bad situation God is using the chaos in the Middle East as an open door for us as Christians to enter the homes of these people we are so welcomed they allow us to sit next to them they allow us to drink with them some tea and coffee and this is an amazing opportunity for the church to come and just share the love of our Savior. And he is the Son of God. Oh. <laughs> and I love Jesus. They know nothing else than war. And if we don't cross the line, and share with them what we have to share. Unfortunately, they might die without having access to the gospel. So friends, this might be a sweet, but the gospel is something that tastes nice. And people need to taste the goodness of the gospel. This is time for the church to move and to run and to help everybody from our brothers and sisters from the refugees. We're standing in the midst of a miracle-working God preparing the harvest and drawing people into the kingdom. The message is this evening. God is going to continue His work regardless of our involvement or not. But the invitation is, be part of this or miss out. Those are the only two options.
Friends, let me briefly touch on the four leaders. Uh, Reuven said, please just give us a quick insight. It's really important, and I'm just going back to those slides, it's really important for us to understand, and, and, and I know you know this, but it's important that we remind one another that God appoints leaders, whether we like them or not. And God sometimes appoints leaders that might not be acceptable in our sight, but that God will use for a season. Um, you might face your own challenges with your leaders, but let me give you an, an African example. Robert Mugabe, president of Zimbabwe, a man who absolutely destroyed a nation. The breadbasket of Africa is now completely destroyed. Farms were taken, destroyed. It's a land in, in, in hunger. It's a land in chaos. And I met the, the, the head of the Baptist Church of Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. And I said to him, my brother, Mr. Mugabe, give me a biblical perspective. And he said to me, Mike, politically and economically, Mr. Mugabe is an evil man, probably the evilest man that we've seen as a leader in Africa. But spiritually, we cannot afford for him to go. And I said, no, you, you need to explain that. He said, I prayed that the Lord will remove Mugabe. Was that wrong? He said, yes, my brother. I said, explain it to me. He said, my brother, the churches in Zimbabwe has never been as full as it is today. There has never been such a hunger for God in Zimbabwe as there is today. Because in a worldview of fear and power, people have lost faith in their political leaders. And they find refuge in God. And I realized there that we need to understand that sometimes God will use any leader for his kingdom purposes. And it might not immediately be evident what God is achieving. But we need to know God appoints leaders. And we have one mandate and one mandate only. And that is to pray for our leaders. So let me, let me just quickly whoops, run through. I'm not going. Yeah, there we go. Mr. Donald Trump, let me not give you my perspective because I'm a South African and it will be very presumptuous to stand before an American crowd and talk about your president. But let me give you a perspective from someone that I highly value and that's Dr. David Aikman. For 12 years in a row, Dr. David Aikman was Time Magazine's top journalist. It's just an amazing man. He speaks six languages flu fluently. He was based in Jerusalem. Do you, do you know, Doctor? He's just an amazing man of God. He was, he was there in Tiananmen Square when, when the Chinese Revolution. He was in Timoswara with the Romanian Revolution. He was in Tahrir Square with the Egyptian Revolution. He's just an amazing man of God. And every time he watched the revolutions and events taking place, it was with a biblical perspective because he's a born-again, spirit-filled believer. And we sat next to him, I think, two days after President um, Trump, Donald Trump, was inaugurated as president last year. And we said to him, David, you've sat on Air Force One with President Bush, and you know all these presidents by name. Give us your impression. And these were his words. And I value this as a completely outsider. He said, Mike, what God needed in America on this progressive road of liberalism was not a soft-spoken president like Ben Carson. He needed a wrecking ball. 
And this is the words he used. And he said, a wrecking ball, we all know what a wrecking ball does. It wrecks. And he said, Mr. Trump will probably wreck some good stuff. But the Lord now needs a wrecking ball to turn the tide of progressive liberalism. And, and friends, I just want to tell you, when I, when, when I see the things that is happening just completely from an outsider, how Mr. Trump stood up against abortion, and how the funding for abortion will now be stopped. How Mr. Trump spoke to 23 Arab leaders in Saudi Arabia and talking to Muslim leaders about the barbaric face of Islam and that you need to get your house in order and that you need to represent and stop persecuting Christians. I just thought that was probably the most bold speech I've ever heard. And immediately after that, funding to Qatar was stopped by Saudi Arabia, which is the exporter of, of terrorism and ISIS and stuff like that. And it's, it's amazing how God is using him. Um, I do think someone need to just advise him on his Twitters, you know, on his tweets. It's not, not the best thing, but yeah, on his tweets. But, but friends, just understand, um, whatever your view this evening, and I don't want to even go into that, but just understand that God has raised up a leader in a season where the Islamic world is in turmoil, where we find that Muslims are killing Muslims, and that now someone at least is standing up for the persecuted church in this region. So Mr. Trump has got a mandate from God, and, and praise the Lord. We, on, on our way to, to, to the USA, we watched on the airplane the darkest hour of Winston Churchill. And you see how Winston Churchill came in for a season of the Second World War. And if it wasn't for Winston Churchill, um, the UK would have surrendered. It was all on the cards. It was all discussed. Winston Churchill came in. They fought the war. They saved the people. They won the battle, and he was disposed after that. But God, God brought him in for a season. We need to acknowledge that. The second leader is um, Prince Mohammed Salman of Saudi Arabia. Friends, I believe that this man is going to be assassinated soon by his own Muslim sheikhs in Saudi Arabia. He's a moderate Muslim. He is the leader and the, but see, the, 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 um, he protects the, the, the most holiest places of Islam in the world in Saudi Arabia. He's a man, as I said earlier, that went to Egypt to meet with Coptic leaders to say to them, you are welcome now in Saudi Arabia. He's building a project, he's launching a project where they are building a secular country within the country of Saudi Arabia where anybody's welcome, where they will have entertainment, technology, everything that Islam disallows. He is proposing to the Muslim sheikhs in Saudi Arabia a new form of Islam that will be acceptable to the Western world. So we see a Muslim, the, the, the most holiest Muslim nation in the world, leader proposing a new face of Islam. Friends, this is dramatic. We live in an amazing season. I, I don't think we, even, we can even begin to comprehend how God is shaping the world, preparing the harvest, and getting everything ready for his bride to come. Kim Jong-un. I mean, you know Kim Jong-un probably as the little rocket man, <laughs> as Donald Trump called him. The, the head of North Korea the number one country close to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And soon, 
Mr. Donald Trump will meet with Kim Jong-un. This is extremely significant. I just find the events of the past year, the past two months, since 2018 started, with Mr. Donald Trump announcing that he's going to meet with Kim Jong-un, that Mr. Salman goes into Egypt. These are events coming rapidly, shaping the world that we live in. Kim Jong-un, young guy, um, developing nuclear weapons. In a sense, it is scary to think that a dictator in his 30s has access to nuclear power. And I think it's a glorious, glorious day. Um, we talk, friends, if, if a nuclear weapon is fired or explodes, we're not talking about thousands. We're talking about millions, millions dying like that. So we need to know that God calls us as his church, not as peacekeepers, but as peacemakers. And I'm just really overjoyed to know that there is the possibility at this stage of Mr. Donald Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un. Uh, together now with China, Xi Jinping coming in, and also with South Korea coming in. And then lastly, Mr. Vladimir Putin. Now, regardless again of your view of Mr. Putin, some obviously see him as a dictator in Russia, um, as a violent man responsible for killing spies and things like that. But let me tell you one thing. If it was not for Mr. Vladimir Putin, ISIS would still be alive and well. And we need to understand that Mr. Putin, in supporting al-Assad in Syria and sending in his fighter planes to destroy ISIS strongholds, is probably one of the biggest gifts he has given to this world of ours. Friends, ISIS was the strongest, richest, and largest terrorist organization in the world. If you understand Islam and that everything in Islam is based on success. So, so when they pray five times a day, part of the prayer would be, we call you to success, we call you to success. So when, when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi established the caliphate and the rest of the Muslim world saw a caliphate, they immediately understood this is the success of Islam, so Abu Bakr must be a true prophet. And that's why globally people joined ISIS. And ISIS controlled an area as big as the United Kingdom and Denmark. So they were all over the Middle East, all Islamic State, ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, that's what it stands for. So they controlled huge areas. They were responsible for thousands and thousands of deaths. And they were just ruthless where they moved. And if it was not, I mean, Mr. Assad was incapable of stopping them. And sadly enough, Europe and America supported the rebels that were partly joining ISIS in their terror, even though they were fighting one another. If it was not for Mr. Vladimir Putin, this world would have looked differently that we live in now. And whether we like him or not, we need, and whether he joined forces with the right people or not, that's questionable. But the point is this. They destroyed and they will continue to fight ISIS and terrorism. So in that regard, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in Russia. He's just been elected again as president, so he's got a new mandate from the Russians to continue to do what he's doing. And it'll be really interesting to see where we go from there. Friends, I think that's enough for capacity this evening. Um, I, you at least looked like you understood my English. So you smiled at the right time and you, you looked angry at the right time as well. <laughs> let, me, let me just close, friends, by, by explaining to you how we as a ministry 
would like to serve you. We are committed to find the truth behind every news article and investigate and interpret and analyze so that you as Christians can pray strategically and also understand what God is doing. We have a website, and I would really like you to visit our website. We are developing the U.S. Web website. Um, just saying that Kurt at the back there, Kurt Volley is, is the head of In Context in the USA, and we are here in the U.S. at the moment to launch In Context in the U.S. I'm extremely grateful for that brother back there who initiated everything that we are here for at the moment. So we do have a website. We update the website every single day of the year. We give the important news in contextinternational.org. It's as simple as that. We've got perspectives. We look at the world from various angles. We find our local perspectives. We contact our local people and we try and help you. We also have a page called Hoaxology. Friends, the hoaxes, the Christian hoaxes that are available today on WhatsApps and Facebook and Internet is just horrific. Maybe you've heard some of them. You know, pray for the Christians in Queragosh, Iraq, who is going to be attacked tonight. And, and this is sent like, it goes like a wildfire through the world. This happened five years ago. Queragosh has in the meantime been liberated, but the email still goes. What about Ulisabang in India? Pray because Buddhists are burning churches at the moment in Ulisabang. Ulisabang does not even exist anywhere in the world. It's simply a hoax. So we try and find these hoax. There are websites like Snopes and, and um, other websites, but we try and look at the Christian hoaxes and focus on that and say, folks, please do not pass this on. You know, Mr. Mr. Trump is a Freemason. I don't know if you've got that one, because when he speaks, he stands like that. That's rubbish. That's a hoax. Um, and we try and investigate and find out exactly where, what, and how, and we make that available. Go and visit our hoaxology page. And I don't know sometimes if I need to laugh or cry uh, when I hear all these hoaxes. But it's available there for you to investigate. And then, friends, a main part of our ministry is that every second Thursday, we send out a world in motion. We look at the main news events of the past two weeks, the news events that you saw on television, whether it's a bomb exploding in Paris or whether it's an attack in, in Nigeria or girls being abducted. We look at the main news events of the past two weeks and give a biblical perspective and how this affects missions and what opportunities it creates. This is free of charge. All I need of you this evening is to come to the book table at the back there, take one of these forms, and please just give me your name, email address, and just indicate there I would like to receive a World in Motion. Every alternative Thursday, we send out an infographic, which is information basically in a picture format that gives you a quick understanding. And it will look at Sunni Shia Muslims. It will look at the world at war. It will look at, there was one about President Donald Trump um, and the elections. So it, it gives a, a wonderful, simple way of looking at news quickly and just getting that understanding of the world that we live in. Um, we also have some, uh, what, uh, pray for the nations, where we take the major news event of the past week on a Wednesday and we just pray for that nation.
So it's praying relative prayers. Praying prayers, we, we believe in praying news. To say, Lord, this is what's happening now. We pray for that. All of this is free of charge. All I need from you this evening is your email address, name and email address, and to give an indication what you would like to receive. We couldn't bring a lot of books. So what I brought with is the 18-inch principle, and that's the book that gloriously and divinely linked us together. In one way or another, Reuven got a PDF copy, which I cannot even remember giving to anybody, but I think someone in China hacked it and they got it. And, and that's just glorious. I love hackers like that. And here we are. So that's the book that linked us together. I think I brought 10 of them. So they're at the back there. And then the latest book, which hasn't even been released in South Africa, is the book about capacity. And that's simply, how do we build this capacity in a season like this? Friends, I have done well. Are there any questions before we just close? You either understood everything or nothing. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's actually not new in Christianity, that, you know, that when people do come to know. Yeah, the question was, we hear that when Muslims come to know Christ, their family kills them. That's a fairly generalization, but it's very true for many areas in the Middle East. First of all, I think what we need to understand is the worldview of Muslims. And maybe I'll explain it with the three worldviews, the, the, the dominant worldviews that you find globally. In the Western world, of which we are part, the worldview and the dominant worldview is right and wrong, guilt and innocence. Um, so something is either right or wrong. And, 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 and we see this, even our, our church fathers were mostly schooled lawyers. And therefore, you know, we are saved from our sins and God paid on the cross for our sins. So everything is based on right and wrong. I see even the gun control issue. It's right or wrong. There's, that's how we think. That's how we, we operate. In the Middle East, it's not right and wrong. It's honor and shame. Everything is based on honor and shame. So if a, if a young Muslim man comes to know Christ, he has put his family, his community, and his religion in shame. And there is one thing higher than love, and that is shame, honor and shame. So the son will be killed. Not because the father doesn't love his son. They love their children as much as we love our children. But there's one thing greater than love, and that's honor and shame. And therefore you get honor killings. And honor killings are not only permissible, but it is encouraged in some nations. Saudi Arabia, if, if, a, if a woman or a man comes to know Christ, he will be executed on the sports stadium publicly because it brought a shame upon the religion. And you need to understand their mindset. Honoring, you don't tell a Muslim that Jesus died for his sin on the cross. It means nothing to him. Because sin does not exist in Islam. You do good and you bad, and Allah decides whether you're going to heaven or hell. You tell a Muslim that Jesus died for his shame on the cross. And that makes sense. In Africa, the worldview is fear and power. So that's why you see witchcraft and you see ancestor worship. And you find that in, in many areas, um, even Christian leaders will enrich themselves to show their power. 
because that speaks to the heart of the people, which, which I don't agree with, but certainly within the African worldview, it makes a lot of sense. Our former president, Mr. Zuma, built a palace. Um, I think the swimming pool alone was a few million. So all the white people in South Africa went, that's wrong. And all the, well, many Africans went, wow, watch his power. You know, those worldviews clash at one stage or another. So in that sense, yeah, when, the, when, the, when someone comes to know Christ, they immediately know there's a cost involved. And that's why when a Muslim says, I want to follow Jesus, you can take it seriously. That was a long answer. So ask more questions. We're getting teaching answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. I don't know the statistic. How many Muslims that converted became citizens of America? I have no idea of those statistics. But what I do know, the statistics known of, of especially Syrian refugees fleeing into Europe and into America, you, you would find that they say of every thousand of them, 830, I think, are educated. So they've either got high school or college or education, um, um, university. So they talk about the highest level of educated group of people in the history of the world. And, and certainly some of them would come to America. We, we do find that many, and as I said earlier, we're not talking about hundreds, but about thousands of them, as they come to know Christ. Now, I assume that what is true for Europe will also be true for the USA. But the exact statistics I do not have. Yeah, yeah. Do they look at this same mindset of shame and honor? Oh, yeah. Or are they looking at it as right and wrong? No. You, probably if, if, a, if an American Christian becomes a Muslim, right. they will have the worldview of right and wrong. But those that, the, the Muslim community, that invites that Christian in. And you can go on YouTube and have a look at some, I, there's a, a Baptist youth pastor that has now become a Muslim. And obviously they will become the poster for Islam in America. It, it, they will just make video after video after video of this young pastor that found, you know, find faith in Islam. Um, the main thing that everybody says, there's a young Catholic girl, and everybody says, we found a community that cares for us. But what they don't know is, once they move into Islam, that community becomes their prison. Because they will never be able to turn back to Christianity. Then they will suffer the consequences. But they will go in with the right and wrong mindset or worldview, while those receiving them will receive them with honor and shame. And it will bring an Im immediate shame if they turn back to Christianity. It's very, very, very complex. Uh, going into the Muslim world to share the gospel, you need to understand the worldview and how the culture operates. So it's, 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 um, it's, there's some major pitfalls along the way, but it's challenging. Faith is 
Yeah, that's a very important point. You know, we uh, the question, the, the the point that Helen is making is that for us as Westerners, um, for or let me put it this way: for a Muslim, the worldview determines the religion. Uh, the religion determines the worldview, so they're interconnected. For Christianity, we very often we're a Christian, but we're also an American. So we have the ability very often to separate our worldview from our faith, which a Muslim cannot do. You see, for a Muslim, Islam is not a religion. It's a culture. So that's who they are. They are Muslim. We are American, and we believe in Jesus. So there's these fine nuances that creates major obstacles when you really want to share the, the gospel with a Muslim. And what, what God did through ISIS, the one pastor said to us, and this is significant, he said, ISIS is the evangelist. We just baptize people. And what he meant by that is, when ISIS moved in, the whole culture and even the honor and shame was the one thing that turned against the Muslims. And that confused them. And that created an incredible disillusionment to such an extent that they opened their hearts to hear about Jesus. And, and it's just, I'm, I'm just amazed. If I look at the world, and five years ago, ISIS didn't even exist. Friends, five years ago, Muslim evangelism was spoken about as one of the hardest fields to go to. Today, it's probably the, op the most open door that we can see in the world today. The church, and I'm talking to about the church in South Africa, the church in America, the church in Europe, the church everywhere needs to understand that we've got a window of opportunity. And I would like to encourage you, friends, please partner. Uh, we are available as a ministry. We serve the pastors in Syria. If you ever feel that you want to do something about what's happening in Syria, we would love to be a vessel. We travel infrequently. We, we support the pastors. We meet them in Lebanon. We support and sponsor the rent of some of the churches. We, we, spend, uh, we sponsor um, generators. We sponsor TV screens and things like that. So there are many vessels that you can be involved in. And what I'm saying is just in this season, friends, we can spare nothing for the kingdom of God. Let me close by saying it's, it's, it's his glory. It's his kingdom. It's all about him. And I love to think about that it's not the Great Commission. I don't believe in the Great Commission. I believe in the Great Invitation. I think the Lord is saying to his church, I'm doing the work. I can do it without you. But you have this glorious invitation to be part of what I'm doing. And that's the joy we face this evening. Friends, I deeply appreciate you being here this evening. I never take an audience on a Monday evening for granted. So I know that you've chosen to be, and I really thank you. And I just thank you for the warm Texas welcome that we received. I feel tonight I'm the only one with, without an accent here. <laughs> and I just deeply appreciate your generosity, your hospitality, and friends, the fingerprints you are leaving in the ends of the earth. Please come and talk to us. Got some books there. Um, I brought 10 of each, capacity and 18-inch principle. Grab one, um, they're $20 each, and come and give me your name and email addresses so that we can stay in touch with you and that we can send you all the necessary information. Kurt is our the head of In Context in the USA. He's based in Indianapolis, and if you would like more or know how you can 
partner, join hand, support, please chat to him. He's a good man. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you, Lord. Father, for an opportunity of just coming to a deeper understanding, Lord, that you are sovereign. Lord, that you, you are building your kingdom. There is no force, person, or group, Father, that dictates to you what needs to be done. You shape events according to your purposes for a season such as this. Lord, I pray that we will be found faithful. That what you entrust to us, Father, here, whether we are in America or whether we are in South Africa or whether we live in Syria, Lord, that we will be found faithful to what you entrust to us. I thank you for this evening, Lord. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to meet brothers and sisters that I've not met before and that we can confirm this evening not only the unity but especially the harmony that we enjoy in the body of Christ. Amen. Reuben, over to you, brother. The scripture says, be instant in season and out of season. Uh, I'm going to ask for two pastors that are very close to my heart. Mark and Jason, could you two come up here? I'd like to have the two of you pray. Mark heads up our uh, a wonderful ministry out of Highland called Hoops for Hope basketball. You can tell that he's a basketball player, but has teams go out to the nations, some in Muslim nations. Uh, Jason was in Africa, loves the Africans. I'd really like to have these two brothers pray for what we've heard and how the Spirit leads them to pray for in context. So. First of all, we acknowledge you, God, that, that you are God and that, Father, you are moving and that sometimes we can get focused on our issues and we can fail to see global perspectives. I thank you this evening for the word that has been brought to us to lift up our eyes unto the hills from whence cometh our help. For our help comes from the Lord, the ruler and maker of heaven and earth. Lord, I'm grateful to you that you are moving in the world. I thank you, Lord, that nothing escapes your notice. I thank you, Father, that you are positioning leaders. You are raising up leaders. You are taking down leaders. You are raising up nations. You are taking down nations. You are rising up movements. You are taking out movements. And you are doing what is in your heart, accomplishing your purposes. And Father God, we speak a blessing upon in context and every person involved with that ministry. Lord, first of all, we pray for protection. For Lord, where, where people are on the front lines, the enemy simply wants to take them out. So Father, we ask for protection, divine protection for each person. Lord, I don't know the whole structure of the organization, but Lord, I know that you are serving as their covering. And we simply join our hands together in linking with them and saying, God, would you protect the leaders, 
those who are who are walking alongside, those who are the reporters in the different nations. Lord, uh, everywhere they have representatives, Father, we join hands with them and we say, God, have your way. Lord, it is for your glory and your glory alone. Yes. Father, we ask that you make financial provision. Lord, we ask that you make spiritual provision. Lord, I ask that you make emotional provision for us, Lord. Provision for us to, to not just be moved tonight to say, wow, what information. But Father, you would move us beyond simply saying, that was great information. But that we would be invested now. Lord, there's, there's involvement and there's investment. And we pray, Lord God, that we've been involved now. Lord, we've been involved in missions. We've been involved in praying. We've been involved in doing things. Lord, we pray now for investment in the name of Jesus. Investment into this ministry, investment into the lives, investment into the hearts and minds of these people. Lord, just seeing the 63 million people who are in transition right now, Father, and we worry about walls and we worry about legalization. We worry about all these different things. Father, we want to simply say, let your kingdom come and your will be done. Break down every wall of, of, of division that would break, keep people from coming into faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that these people who are so hopeless would encounter the God of hope. However you want to accomplish that, Lord, through, through water, through shelter, through bread, Lord, through encouragement, through medical help, Lord, whatever you want to do, we simply say, God, would you fan those flames of evangelism? Lord, the most, the most uh, stirring thing in my heart was when, when he shared that there's probably a three-year a, a three window. God, grip our hearts that the, that the fields are white. Lord, let us understand the seasons, Lord. Grain doesn't, doesn't grow and stay ripe forever. It, it, it grows ripe and then it's harvested. And if it's not harvested, it rots. And so, Lord, we understand the season. And so, Lord, we ask not only would you make us understand the season, make us know how to, to deal with the seasons. What is our part? Let us know our part, Lord God. Let us know our part in the harvest. And then make us faithful and courageous. Faithful and courageous to enter the fray on behalf of those who have no hope. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, Father, just tonight, as, uh, as I've been here praying, I'm, I'm, you show me my daughter, my youngest daughter, Anna, and her tendency is to take forever to get her shoes on and to get out of the door to go play with her brothers and sister, or her brother and sister, and get out there and get a part of it. And oftentimes, by the time she finally has her shoes on and she's ready to play, the game is over, something's changed, the, the season is over, and they've already decided to do something different, and she just sits and falls and cries because she totally missed out. And Father, just tonight, I just pray that the church is not like that tonight, God. I pray that you would help us to get our shoes on so that we could run and join in what's going on before the opportunity is lost, Father. And we'll miss out, but we know that, that millions of people in transition will miss out, Father. We, we want to be a part. We want to be ready. And, and God, just as you've taught me about to be good parents, we, we try to get her ready. We try to do what we can to get her out the door to be a part of it. Father, as pastors and as leaders, would you give us the wisdom that we need? 
need to be able to position the church to be able to be a part of this right now, Father, that there's churches, there's congregations on every street in every city in this town, Lord, and in every, every city in this state and in our nation. And we're sitting on money and we're sitting on opportunity and we're sitting on, on, on the resource to be able to join in. And I just pray, Father, that you give us wisdom to know how to position our people to be a part. Father, if that's to give, if it's to pray, if it's to just to be in tune with what's going on, if it's to go, Father, uh, would you just move us in, 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 in ways of wisdom that will establish uh, the generations to come, God, that, uh, that what you're going to do in these three to four or five years in this window, Father, will shape the generations. And so, God, I just pray that you move us. And God, I just pray that you'd rain down wisdom and grace on us, that we can move in paths that will establish wisdom and grace for our congregations, but for the nations, Father, and, and all these refugees, Lord. And we just pray for this harvest. And we do. We just ask, uh, Father, that, that uh, you would give us strategic insight um, with our own people and, and with the people who are on, on the fence of what they're going to do uh, in their own life. I'm thinking about the people here in, in the States, God, and, and those that are converting. And um, Father, we just pray that you would, you would give us insight and you would give us the words and the love and the compassion, Lord Jesus. Um, Father, I just uh, I pray for these men and women that are that are traveling, and these men and women that are that are here tonight, and uh, and that are that are taking part of these wonderful ministries that we've been exposed to. I just pray, God, for for energy. I pray for longevity, Lord Jesus. Um, God, I pray for the the deepest needs they have personally in their families and what's going on with them in their in their local congregations and the in their communities. God, I pray that you'd bless them, that you would strengthen them in their foundations, God. And we love you, Father, and we bless your name, Lord Jesus. And we pray that everything that we're talking about and doing is for your glory and not for us. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brothers. In 1979, I had been a believer for seven years. And I had a, a, a really wonderful encounter with God in, in a morning quiet time. And I believe that he, he branded upon my spirit a life verse. And it, was, it came from a very unusual place. It was from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 13, that says, For it shall come to pass, just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and O house of Israel, so shall I save you that you may become a blessing. And God put it in my heart right then to not look to be on the receiving end of God's blessings, but to always want to be on the giving end. I will save you that you may be a blessing. Only fear thou not and let your hands be strong. So I'd encourage you to have strong hands tonight to write large checks. No, I believe that this is a ministry that's worth sowing into. We heard a lot tonight about harvest. I mean, these numbers, it's unfortunate that in these days we are number hardened. I mean, 60 million abortions. Wow. And we go on and live our life. 63 million dispersed. Harvesting starts with seed, and it must be sown. It must be sown. There'll never be a harvest without seed that's not sown. 
and it must be watered. Sowing and watering are critical to get the harvest. And then, praise the Lord, there is the harvest. The heart of God is at looking at the harvest. Behold, the harvest fields are ripe. But the laborers are few. I would doubt if maybe any of us felt a call to go to Syria as a result of hearing tonight. But we can go through a sowing, through a watering, through allowing the seed to be able to go forth. So I'd encourage you to be a blessing uh, to this work and to this process of harvesting souls. And Father, again, I just want to really thank you that you're the Lord of the harvest. All we are is simple, tiny laborers. But Lord, after all that we've seen tonight, we pray you'd send forth a whole lot more laborers into these fields. Lord, thank you for what uh, different churches, not only from around the world, but even here in Waco, are looking to have a heart for refugees. Lord, your heart is there for those 63 and a half million people. So Lord, we thank you that part of our heart was stretched tonight and our understanding was stretched. And Lord, this was a creative way to hear the gospel, the good news. Even though there's a lot of bad news accompanied with good news, the end result is God wins. And Lord, we just pray that you would guide us and lead us. If you would have us look to join hands in some way to be able to allow seeds to be sown and then to be watered and then to be harvested. Show us your plan and thank you for your servants. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have two different giving kiosks. One is in the back. The other one is off here to the side. And uh, we have some South African napkins on the inside to look to have a blessing go to Africa. So, Lord, bless you. Thank you for coming tonight. And let's continue harvesting. Amen.